In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. This week, David Frost and Brandon Lewis double down on their attacks on the Northern Ireland Protocol, despite last week's series of concessions by the EU. We'll explore why, in the latest broadsides, the EU's approach is just not kosher. And why the EU is whistling all the way to the bank after Boris Johnson famously dismissed talk of a multi-billion euro divorce as having to swallow a financial settlement of 47.5 billion, which the EU says is final. We'll hear from Ireland's member of the European Court of Auditors about how the eye-watering amount was reached. And we'll be hearing from Queen's University's Professor Katie Hayward on her new book, The Irish Border. What else? And how attitudes to the protocol are hardening and entrenching on both sides of the divide. And we'll hear from a veteran of EU affairs who has spent his career trying to build bridges between London and Brussels on how to stop the slide in relations. First, Tony, David Frost and Brandon Lewis, they've been doing somewhat of a tour, a tour that... Their, their compatriot musicians can't do around the stops of Europe, but they've been doing a bit of a virtual tour themselves to various discussion fora and newspaper pages to put forward their point of view about the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's right, Colm. So th- they've been on manoeuvres, very active, uh, a very much talked about article in the Irish Times last weekend and an appearance this week at the Policy Exchange Think Tank, which is fair to say a a strongly patriotic right-wing, if I may put it that way, think tank in uh, the UK, certainly pro-Brexit think tank in the UK. Um, And they've been pretty much hammering home the message that the way the protocol is being implemented is not balanced, that the EU is not showing the right degree of flexibility and pragmatism and that this is upsetting the the careful balance of the peace process um, and that the EU is prioritising protecting the single market over protecting east-west trade and protecting the sensitivities of unionists. And this is a a narrative that they have been pushing, as we've been discussing in the podcast, uh, over and over again. Um, And with each expression of the narrative, you know, there's another kind of critique that's added. uh, And by and large, they're saying that it's just not sustainable. Uh, Brandon Lewis even going so far as to say that the way the EU is applying the protocol is in breach of the protocol. uh, And they quote various passages of and provisions of the protocol to to back up their uh, argument. Um, And David Frost himself was in the Northern Ireland Executive uh, Committee, the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee on uh, on the Executive uh, today, Friday, again, 
repeating a lot of the uh, critique that he has been pushing on on the protocol. And his deputy, Rebecca Ellis, was there and she was making the point that because the protocol itself was the product of a recognition on both the EU and the UK side that Northern Ireland was a unique and unusual situation with Brexit, then surely the EU should continue that uh, acknowledgement that it is a unique and unusual situation and therefore take a much more pragmatic and flexible approach to how the protocol was was being applied. Um, David Frost was challenged quite sharply at the committee by a number of the Sinn Féin uh, and independent MLAs about this idea that the UK is only flagging up the problems and allegedly inflaming tensions around the protocol. And he had one particular exchange with Pat Sheehan of Sinn Féin over sausages. That's, they weren't sharing around. a dish of sausages, to, to be clear. Not It was on the matter of sausages. Exactly. The political reality of this situation has got to be taken seriously in the discussions we have with the EU. And at the moment, I don't feel that's happening entirely. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, and you've acknowledged that there isn't a constitutional issue, that there's, uh, in your mind, there's a political problem. Now, I'm saying to you, it's been completely overblown and that the vast majority of businesses and the farmers support the protocol. Uh, and on the issue of goods coming from uh, across the water to here, I mean, if people can't get Cumberland sausages here, they'll certainly be able to get local sausages. And, and, and that's good for local businesses here. Would you not agree with me? And, that's, and that was what was always going to happen in the context of this, that there was going to be a reorientation of supply lines. Businesses were going to find new markets and new opportunities. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I, on the basis of the... Um, uh, the Northern Irish sausages I've had uh, on my various visits here. I, I certainly agree with you. The local product is 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 just as good, but it, but obviously that's not really the the point. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the point is that um, uh, you know the opportunities have changed, and the opportunities uh, have disappeared for one producer and yes may have opened up for another but but that that wasn't what we were were trying to achieve here i think you know business can speak for itself and does speak for itself very very vigorously and i don't you know i'm not going to sit here and tell you what business thinks because you'll know uh, as well or better as i do all i can say is that um i think business values the legal certainty of having um an agreement between us and the EU and they value you know being able to proceed by consensus if we can uh, and I think that's absolutely reasonable and normal for, for business wherever I've, I've met it but I, I, I don't think I've met a representative of business community or um, uh, a, a, a leader of a business who has said this is absolutely fine. There is absolutely no problem with it. There are no difficulties of any kind. Some do very significantly downplay the difficulties, and obviously it does depend what your business is. But I would say almost without exception, almost, 
people point to the difficulties in moving goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, the delays, uh, the complexity with that. For some businesses, that's, that's extremely important. For some, obviously, it's only a, a small part of what they do. But it, it's unusual for that not to be mentioned as an aspect of the protocol that, that could be improved. And I, I do think that can't be dismissed when we're trying to find the, the way forward here. And just finally, I'm glad to say you're talking about the protocol, the protocol being improved rather than done away with. Thank you. Thanks. So or just on just on that final point, just just repeat. You know, we we've said there always will be the need for a, a treaty relationship between us and the EU covering Northern Ireland. I mean, I think that that is that is self-evident, and we wouldn't seek to deny it. Obviously, it's the content that's the uh, the, the thing that he's talking about. So that was sausages, Tony, but. Quite apart from that, the issue of kosher food has come up. Brandon Lewis uh, talking before about the potential effect on numbers in the Jewish community in Ireland unless the issue over chilled meats is not resolved. Yeah, so this is in connection to the, the grace period on chilled meats, which, of course, the EU agreed to extend last week until the end of September. And when Brandon Lewis was addressing the policy exchange uh, on Thursday of this week, he said that he'd been told by the Jewish community in Belfast that they were unable or they would be unable to get kosher meats from GB because the grace period was going to end after at, at the end of September. And he said that he was told that this could lead to an exodus of the Jewish community from Northern Ireland. And it's it's true that he did meet the uh, chief rabbi and the Jewish uh, board of deputies uh, in Belfast this week, and they apparently made their concerns known to him. Um, but this was this got a you know a really negative reaction in Dublin. A senior official I spoke to said that this was really recklessly escalating tension around the protocol. By using terminology like exodus uh, with the Jewish population in Northern Ireland and while yes of course there could be an issue with kosher meats entering Northern Ireland from GB and where would that community source those meats if the grace period is not extended beyond September or they don't get some deal on chilled meats you know it, it's already been politicized by the UK and it's also an example where the UK perhaps intentionally was trying to say, okay, it's not just two communities who are at odds with each other over the virtues or otherwise of the protocol. Now we have a third community, the Jewish community, which absolutely rejects the way the protocol is being implemented. And again, the, the view in Dublin, and I assume in Brussels, is, is it, again, this is ramping up the, the tension, only flagging up problems and, and not acknowledging what the EU has been trying to do uh, to... to introduce flexibilities into the process. Right. And and the, the strong view in Dublin now is that it took quite a bit of political capital by the Irish government to get the EU and the European Commission to move on the chilled meats issue to grant that extension and the other flexibilities around medicines and the movements of livestock and uh, driving uh, motor insurance and so on. And it's you know, the, the the response from the UK so far seems to be very ungracious. They're just saying, yeah, we'll bank that, but we need more. Keep giving us more concessions. And the view in Dublin is that the EU is less likely 
in future to be generous or flexible if that's the way the UK responds. So, you know, this does not augur very well for dealing with problems in the future when they arise. On the kosher issue, it's it's again, it's it has it's become one of these alternative supply chain change issues because kosher goods can be sourced in the Republic through, I think, SuperValue imports it and they're apparently changing their supply chains to suppliers from the Netherlands. So it's uh, it's just one yeah, of Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, I mean, th- this is a point that, uh, yes, of course, it, it, it poses a problem and Brexit poses problems all over the place, as we know. The, 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 so the question is, like, w- is it a problem also for the Jewish community in Dublin? How are they managing? And yeah, as you mentioned, the, the, the super value issue. Also, they they used to have kosher butchers in Dublin, but they've now since disappeared because the community is, has got smaller. And they were getting kosher meats from, from GB um, until Brexit happened. And now they're getting them from, from Europe, uh, as you say, Rotterdam, probably some other parts. But as it turns out, some of the GB kosher meats that they were getting had originally been slaughtered in Ireland um, by uh, Israeli specialists uh, who were slaughtering uh, livestock according to kosher rituals, sending it back to GB for processing and then re-importing it into Ireland. And this is obviously before Brexit when that sort of thing could be done in a large scale. But nowadays, again, that's going to be an awful lot more difficult. And some of this isn't, you know, accidental friction that's been caused with, as you say, the round of articles and interviews been done by Brandon Lewis and David Frost. I mean, our colleague in RTE, Philip Boucher-Hayes, was saying that the British ambassador was offered to the weekend programme he's currently presenting to coincide with this newspaper article coming out. So there's there's quite a media blitz. It's, it's quite deliberate putting the uh, British view of problems with the Northern Ireland Protocol on the record in the same week as the concessions you're talking about are being made. So, I mean, it, it can't be going down well in Dublin, but from the point of view of how it's going down in Brussels and how today's exchange in the uh, Stormont Committee will go down, do you have any sense of it yet? I mean, it's too soon, obviously, to tell how the Stormont Committee uh, input will go on, will go down, should I say. But any sense of how the article went down or how the statements since have gone down, the policy exchange viewpoints? I, I think in general, the article went down quite badly in the sense that it was seen in some ways as Brandon Lewis and David Frost targeting the Irish government to try and almost win them over to the to the British point of view. And again, there's, there is, there's always been a fear in Dublin that the UK would try and peel off the Irish government and Irish public opinion on this. And that's something that the Irish government is extremely sensitive about. I mean, there was a a suggestion at some point over the past six months by an EU diplomat that Dublin now seemed to be equidistant between the UK and Brussels. And I think Irish officials and diplomats pushed back very hard against any notion that they were somehow ambivalent in their, you know, which camp they were in. I mean, the, the, the Irish government has been trying to lobby quietly on behalf of getting a pragmatic solution to this problem. And EU governments and the Commission and the institutions realise that if this goes belly up, then Ireland will be left holding the parcel. Um, So there is an understanding of the delicate role that Ireland has to play. 
Um, and that's why Irish officials get increasingly frustrated that the efforts that they're making are then going to be devalued if the UK doesn't seem isn't apparently reciprocating. And you know, one, one minute, you know, once they get the concessions, then they are immediately on the war path again, demanding uh, more uh, concessions and flexibilities and kind of trash talking the the European Commission's approach to uh, implementing the protocol. And again. The other argument is, which you hear over and over again, the EU still isn't getting full access to databases to get an accurate picture of how onerous or otherwise the checks and controls are at northern ports. So a lot of the accusations that are being made can't really be challenged by the European Commission because they they just don't have the data yet as to how how much is being checked, uh, whether it's checking paperwork checking vehicles physically uh, and again the UK is constantly repeating this claim that 20% of all checks in the EU are happening in Northern Ireland ports. The European Commission is saying it's 20% of movements of big consignments of food uh, are going across the Irish Sea uh, compared to the rest of Europe and that's because there isn't another model where one piece of territory gets a huge chunk of its food from another piece of territory and there's a a shipment across the sea involved. That just doesn't happen anywhere else in Europe. Um, And again, you know, this this figure is being contested. So what's going on now in Brussels and Dublin is a kind of a parlour game trying to interpret what the UK's ultimate strategy is. And one theory from a senior figure I spoke to was that they are now freely freely admitting that they knew what they were signing up to, um, that they understood the implications, but now we have a real world playing out of those implications and we have a problem and they're focusing on the problem and are prepared to take the reputational hit by constantly threatening to trigger Article 16. Again, David Frost this week said on a number of occasions there will have to be some kind of trading arrangement between the EU and UK over Northern Ireland, which sounds to me like he's saying, yes, we'll have to have some arrangement. If not this one, then we'll have something else. Like, again, this this kind of signalling or hinting that they may uh, somehow try to abandon the protocol or, again, trigger Article 16. Although, interestingly, at that hearing in Stormont, he was asked what would the threshold be for the UK to consider triggering Article 16 when it came to the the diversion of trade. And of course, diversion of trade is one of the criteria by which you are entitled to trigger Article 16. And, you know, he's made it quite clear that he does believe that diversion of trade is happening. It's on the ground. And we've seen that with chilled meats and so on. But he said, well, look, you know, it's difficult According to international jurisprudence, there isn't a clear-cut threshold by which you can trigger uh, such a safeguard measure based on on the shifting of trade patterns or or supply chains. Um, He said Article 16-type safeguard measures are not that common in free trade agreements, so therefore it's hard to say. So I think he was kind of hedging on that and probably signalling that it may not be in the UK's interests ultimately to trigger Article 16 in the coming weeks, although they have said, of course, that they are going to 
announced new measures on the protocol before the summer recess in Parliament, and that's the 22nd of July. Well, Tony, as luck would have it, seeing as we've spent the time talking about issues around the border and the protocol, you've been speaking to the author of a new book this week, Queen's University Belfast professor Katie Hayward. Yeah, that's right. Katie Hayward is, she's been on the programme before. She's a very highly esteemed and, and you know, well-appreciated commentator on Brexit and she's, she's doing an awful lot of work uh, at Queen's University along with Professor David Finnemore on studying attitudes to the protocol um, and she's been a you know a highly valued commentator on Brexit since the referendum. Uh, so I spoke to her earlier about her new book which explores the whole issue of borders and it's it's a book that follows the instruction from the publisher what is it and what do we do about it? So it's basically what is the Irish border and what are we going to do about it? And and here she is. Kitty Hayward, delighted to have you on Brexit Republic once again. Thanks for having me, Tony. You've launched a book called The Irish Border. Uh, you're eminently well qualified to write on this subject because you've been dealing with the implications of the Irish border and Brexit uh, ever since the referendum. How did you approach this topic, it's obviously one of these subjects which is, you know, a big topic uh, and kind of off you go to tell us what it's all about. Yes, I mean, a, a launch is a funny thing to do at a time in a time of COVID. So it's been sort of rather, it hasn't been a big bang launch, um, but we're getting there. Um, essentially, this is part of a series from Sage, which is um, edited by Chris Gray, who many of your listeners may have heard of. He writes a lot on Brexit. And the series title is called What Do We Know and What Should We Do About? And it covers all sorts of things, such as social mobility and internet privacy and all all those kind of issues. And he asked me to write one on the Irish border, not least because he'd been following what I was doing on Brexit and the Irish border. It's a short book. It's only 30,000 words. And it was a good time, I think, to write it, to consider, of course, 100 years after partition, what the Irish border looks like and indeed new types of borders that are happening around Northern Ireland post-Brexit. And in the framing of the book, thinking, you know, what do we know about the Irish border? What do we know about the nature of borders and their evolution over time and how we manage them? And then to be asked the question, what should we do about the Irish border was a little bit intimidating, but actually it was a good way of sort of concentrating analysis on, on that particular question, thinking in the present about the protocol and its implications, of course, for the Irish sea border, so-called, but also looking ahead to the potential future for the Irish land border itself and being forced to kind of, yes, apply some analysis on those really tricky issues. It is, um, as you say, it's a short book, it's about 100 pages, but it it has a tremendous historic sweep. I mean, you go back 9,000 years at one point uh, to, you know, the early settlers in, in Ireland and You've really given us a, a great view of the contested nature of the border and whether it's a political border or whether there is some kind of almost a physical demarcation between Ulster and the rest of Ireland. I mean, these are ideas that have been passed around and inflated in, in some respects here and there across Irish history. Did Did you set out to just look at the nature of borders uh, because, you know, it's a very well-sourced book as well. Did, did you find that once you were getting into it, you were getting deeper and deeper into Irish history? Yeah, and I should say, Tony, thanks for your endorsement of the book, which I really appreciate. Um, I mean, 
I think what I wanted to do, I, I asked Chris um, Gray as the editor, could I have double the usual space he allows for the background? Because obviously the background to the Irish border is really important. And there's many really excellent books that have um, been published, especially in the last couple of years on partition. And I didn't want to repeat that or indeed stray into the, the realm of historians because I'm not qualified to do that. But it, it was, I think, a good time to try and explain the connection of unionism to the territory of Ireland and why the Irish border is viewed so differently by unionists and nationalists and the importance of the territory of the north of Ireland for, for unionists and indeed the Irish Sea for Unionists as that line of connection to Britain. And obviously I had to leave an awful lot out and skip over an awful lot of detail, but to try and explain, I think, that connection to the territory and therefore, as I say, Unionist understanding of the Irish border um, and how, what it means for, for their identity, um, I needed to put it in that historical context. And of course then, leading up to the Good Friday Agreement and then of course to Brexit, explaining how nationalists the Irish border too and trying to do justice to to those very different perspectives through putting it in that sort of broad historical context it, it's an it's an intriguing title you know what to do about the Irish border because in a sense if you ask the Irish government they would say well we've dealt with the Irish border through the protocol uh, and it's it's no it's not going to be a hard border but of course things haven't rested there in the book do you come to any conclusions about how this trilemma of Brexit and the land border and the sea border and Irish history can be resolved? Do you think it's resolvable? I mean, we call it a trilemma for a reason um, and it's not resolvable in a, in a simple way. And I think the fact that we are looking at the existence or the changing nature of the sea border and indeed of the land border, lest we forget, as a result of Brexit, I mean, we can't get away from that. And I think this is one reason why I really emphasise towards the end of the book the importance of the Good Friday Agreement, because it does, of course, seek to manage the east-west relationships as well as the north-south ones, and then having a direct impact on what happens within Northern Ireland. I mean, the, those things are all interdependent and interwoven, as we know, and they can get worse through political decisions and rhetoric and mismanagement, as, as we are possibly seeing at the moment, and they can also be improved that way. So I don't I don't think there's any simple answer. You'll not be surprised to hear me say that. Um, but I do think even looking ahead, thinking about the possibility of Irish unification and still recognising, of course, the importance of that East-West relationship, even in that context, still recognising the importance or endurance of unionist or British identity on the island of Ireland, perhaps even in that context. Yeah, so when I'm thinking about answering that question, what should we do about the Irish border? It's it's always in light of that east-west and north-south dimension. And now that we have the protocol and it's up and running, it's obviously been a fairly rocky ride since the 1st of January and you've been looking at attitudes to the protocol through the Lucid Talk uh, survey. Can you just tell me about that survey and, and what you found? Yeah, so this is part of a project that I'm working on with um, Professor David Finnamore, my colleague, and we are running about three times a year a poll using Lucid Talk's opinion panel on attitudes towards the protocol and indeed towards Brexit, but sort of in the context of people's views of the protocol. And we've conducted one in March before we saw the sort of the upsurge in loyalist resistance to the protocol, and then we ran one in June there. And I think there are several things that are quite interesting from this. I mean, 
what we do see is the consistency in the results of those polls, i.e. there is a very clear division, there's pretty much an even split in opinion over whether the protocol is appropriate or a good thing or not for Northern Ireland. I think it's 47% um, uh, that's 47% right. in, in favour and yes, against. exactly. And it's pretty much what it was in March. It is extraordinary. And of course, um, David Frost and uh, Brandon Lewis referred to that in their rather controversial um, op-ed in the Irish Times last week, talking about the even split over the protocol and there's no majority support for it, etc. And this, of course, is the danger when you're when you're conducting these opinion polls, that the results can be picked up in various different ways for various different arguments. I think what I would stress is actually what we are seeing the majority of people wanting. It's quite clear the majority want the UK to align with the EU rules to minimise frictions on the Irish Sea. The majority even think that there are economic opportunities for Northern Ireland through the protocol, even though at the moment they're split over it. Um, and uh, the majority recognise that something specific was needed for Northern Ireland to go back to that trilemma. It depends what you emphasise, but I do think those findings are quite important as well. And I should also mention, we repeated a question that we asked in the previous survey in March about trust in the UK government and other actors around the protocol. And it's really quite striking how low trust is in the British government, which is, well, it's up to 6% from 5% in March, extraordinarily low. And then low trust in the Northern Ireland Executive there is more trust in the Irish government and the European Commission, funnily enough, at around 40%, but it's still still not great. And, and does that question I, about trust, is that broken down to those who are unionist or nationalist or, or other? Yeah, and I think this is why we have such low levels of trust in the British government, because unionists, including those who are strongly unionist, DUP supporters, TUV supporters, I mean, they don't trust the British government. Whereas if you're looking at trust in the Irish government and the European Commission, unionists don't trust them either, for the most part, but they do, but nationalists do, or they're more like more inclined to trust them. Um, and I think, so that's that's probably why we have that difference there. Now, we don't know what that's going to look like in the next survey. Maybe that will change. I think it depends quite a lot on what happens in the, in the coming months. But yes, I think because, and we see this very much in what's going on at the moment, because unionists really don't trust the British government. Those results are, are very bad at the moment you know, in, yeah. across Northern Ireland. Funnily enough, I mean, at the same time, the UK government seems to have completely aligned its narrative with that of, of unionists on the protocol. You know, they, they are relentlessly taking a hostile view to of the protocol and the way the EU is implementing it. And it's not, you know, they're not taking... Certainly, it appears to me that they're not taking a nuanced and unbalanced view of the protocol, talking as much about its potential as instead they're talking about the problems and and talking up the problems. I mean, how do you divine what the UK government's intentions are, or at least the strategy? Because you know they've they've argued such for, so vehemently about the need to change and the need for a more balanced approach to the protocol, and yet within days of the EU publishing a package of measures, including quite a few flexibilities and things that the UK were asking for, they were on the attack again. Mm. Yes, and I, I know that's very disappointing for those who have been urging the EU to show flexibility and patience um, at this time. And those measures were not insignificant. I mean, thank goodness that agreement to extend the grace period came. And that is therefore a joint decision. That's that's 
very good at the moment. But of course, it's just for a short period of time. And it's easy to see how the next three months of that grace period could be spent with more divisive rhetoric and more spats rather than actually using that space to allow the adjustment that is necessary to minimize the the end the impact of the ending of that grace period and those other yes there was very little publicity around those concessions that had been made and instead in fact yesterday we have seen both Brandon Lewis and David Frost that is again in in talking about finding a new approach and setting a deadline um, themselves of the 22nd of July for something significant to happen with respect to the protocol and, and minimising trade friction across the Irish Sea. We, we don't know what that is, but as you say, the, the rhetoric around it doesn't look as though it's one that is looking towards having a, you know, seeing movement from both sides. It's still always emphasising the need for the EU to be less purist, regardless of, of course, the fact that uh, the UK's purism with respect to not wanting to align with the EU's rules is is obviously exaggerating the significance of that Irish sea border, at least in those areas. Yeah, I and mean, I think we're going to wait to hear exactly what the UK government has in mind when it talks about the protocol. They're, they're going to bring forward some ideas and present them to the House of Commons, as you say, before the parliamentary recess on the 22nd of July. I suppose, finally, Katie, looking at the long term, we have a bit of breathing space now with this agreement, even though the rhetoric hasn't really subsided Um and both sides are, on paper at least, committed to trying to find some kind of long-term solution to the f- sanitary and phytosanitary issues, the whole question of food movements across the Irish Sea by the end of September when the grace period extension would expire. Um, I mean, the, the people are looking at that deadline, but also looking as far ahead as May of next year. I mean, do you, do you think that... A lot of the different parallel tensions here are really to do with trying to perhaps shore up the DUP's position ahead of those assembly elections of, of next May. Yes, uh, it was clear before the DUP had its minor sort of implosion uh, with respect to the leadership. It was clear the strategy that was at, at work there. And I think we talked about this before, you know, if, if the DUP is there to scrap Articles 5 to 10, i.e. the Irish Sea border, and the consent vote at the end of 2024, then you can see the logic of um, banging this drum all the way up to May, if, if we last that long before an election. And um, things are a little bit more complicated now. And funnily enough, I think they've become a wee bit more nuanced as well. And certainly the rhetoric of scrapping the protocol has toned down somewhat. And I this think is from Jeffrey Donaldson practice. himself, the new leader of the yes. DUP? Yeah, I think so. Um, and also, of course, with Doug Beattie there from the Ulster Unionist Party. I mean, they are clear um, um, in their criticisms of the protocol and their concerns around what it means for Northern Ireland's place in the UK and the UK internal market. You know, those those are very sincere concerns. But I, I think there is a sense of actually Northern Ireland could be in a worse position without the protocol. And certainly, although there are suspicions that the UK is, you know, threatening to trigger Article 16 or act unilaterally again over the protocol, it's it's not explicitly saying it will scrap it. And I think unionists are alert to that, the need to sort of adjust to that fundamental reality that this thing is not going to be renegotiated. So I'll, I'll try and be positive <laughs> yeah. on that. And certainly whatever Lord Frost says today, instalment will be very interesting and seeing how that 
matches or, or diverges from what Shevkovich was saying the other week. Notably, Shevkovich promised to continue to engage with the Northern Ireland Assembly, and hopefully Lord Frost will make the same promise, because I really think that's what's been missing very much up to now, that direct engagement, and hopefully that will increase so that we can start dealing with the actual things that are of concern rather than a lot of the ideological and rhetorical matters instead. Okay, well, let's, let's hope so, Katie. Um, and listen, one, thanks so much again for joining us on Brexit Republic and best of luck with the book. Uh, that's Professor Katie Hayward from Queen's University Belfast, who's also a senior fellow of the UK in a changing Europe. And her book is called The Irish Border and it's published by Sage. Thanks again, Katie. Thanks so much, Tony. Okay, that was Queen's University Belfast Professor Katie Hayward, Tony. To move to another issue that we were looking at this week, and that's the issue of the divorce bill. This is one of the contentious issues we've but European citizens. We touched on that in the podcast before this one, looking at leave to remain and the EU settlement scheme in the UK. The other contentious issue was what was termed the divorce bill and how much the UK would have to pay on exiting the European Union. You got some figures on that this morning. Yeah, that's right. So going back to the launch of the Brexit withdrawal negotiations in 2017, you remember David Davis, the then Brexit secretary, said this would be the row of the summer. And, you know, some figures were being bandied about, about how much the UK would have to pay for its financial settlement. Clearly, quite a few Brexiteers were extremely angry at the idea of paying any money to the EU on departure. Since we joined the common market on the 1st of January 1973, until the date we leave, we will have given the EU and its predecessors in today's money in real terms a total of £209 billion. Will the Foreign Secretary make it clear to the EU that if they want a penny piece more, they can go whistle? I'm sure sure that uh, my honourable friend's words will have broken like a thunderclap over Brussels and they will pay pay attention to what he has uh, has said and he makes a very valid valid point. And I think that uh, the sums that I have seen that they propose to uh, demand from this country seem to me to be extortionate and I think to go whistle is is an entirely appropriate expression. And other observers believing that they would only pay the money in exchange for a free trade agreement, whereas the EU was saying, no, no, this is basically, if you're a member, this is, these were your financial obligations and you still have to meet those right up until you depart. And of course, the UK only departed formally at the end of December last year because they had the transition period. So the both sides agreed a mechanism for how the financial settlement would be reached in the withdrawal agreement. There's a sequence of articles in there, Article 139 up to about Article 145. And um, at the time, the the UK was saying it could be around £35 billion to £39 billion. Um, Some other figures were thrown about at the time. At one point, it was about €100 billion. But uh, it it was not going to be until the EU published its consolidated accounts for 2020 that you would actually get those figures. Now, ironically enough, the EU did publish its consolidated accounts for 2020 on the 1st of July with a section in there on the UK 
uh, financial settlement and nobody picked it up um, until RTE actually did it yesterday and Thursday, got a tip off about it and um, the figures were in there. So essentially what they're having to pay is 47.5 billion euro, which is perhaps about 5 billion pounds more than the Treasury was expecting to pay. Uh, And there was quite a swift pushback from Treasury last night saying that, oh, this is just an estimate, it's not going to be that high. But uh, according to the European Court of Auditors, while these are provisional figures, they uh, the, the, the audit has been done and it's unlikely that the European Court of Auditors, which will issue its own findings on the whole EU budget in November, as it does every year, it's unlikely that the European Court of Auditors will change its opinion. Right. So that figure of 47.5 billion looks like it's it's there to stay. And it covers basically what the UK owes in terms of the EU's own spending promises and commitments that were, that were in place right up until the 31st of December last year uh, for all projects. So any grants or spending for, con- for infrastructure or cohesion or science and research, all of the spectrum of EU spending. But also there was a a figure of about 14.5 or 14.3 billion euro, which would cover the ongoing salaries and pensions and health insurance needs of EU officials, MEPs, uh, commissioners uh, and so on, judges at the European Court of Justice. So taken together, the whole amount was around 47.5 um, billion euro, the, the UK is getting some money back because it can t- it has a share of the money that the EU earns by fining companies in antitrust state aid cases like some of the big uh, high profile cases that we know about. Um, so the UK will get some money back, uh, but when you when you add that in and you offset it against the total amount, the the, the bill for the the divorce settlement is forty seven. Uh, 0.5 billion euro. And we can hear now from Ireland's member on the European Court of Auditors, Tony Murphy, as to how this figure was arrived at and why it is the final amount. Tony Murphy, thanks very much for for your time on this. Um, Can you just explain at the outset how this overall figure was arrived at? Well, just, just to, to, to put it into context, I mean, this is a figure which has been calculated by the Commission. So it's the Commission who have calculated this figure in line with the terms of the withdrawal agreement. And the, the figure that's mentioned specifically of 47.5 billion consists of three main components. One is the rest of Aikide, so it's 35 billion euros. And this is the main part of it and relates to programmes and projects that you know, up until they, the, the, the UK left at the end of 2020, that they pay their share of any commitments made in, in relation to those. So that's basically commitments which have been made at the end of 2020, and the UK share is basically 12.36% of that total. Uh, that's based on, that was calculated again in line with the withdrawal agreement on the ratio of the UK own resources made available compared to the Uh, those made available by the EU28 during the period 2014 to 2020. So that's the basis is 12.36. Obviously, some commitments which are made don't actually materialise in in reality. So already they have built in a a sort of a, a, based on past experience, they have built in a factor of about almost 3%. So around a billion euros has already been 
reflected in the 35 billion. So it was 36 billion and they already reduced it by a billion thinking that this already, these around 1 billion commitments won't actually happen in practice. So there's, it could be that there could be more, there could be less, but I mean, they have already anticipated based on their best estimate, if you like, and past experience that this would be the, 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 the final tally. The other big component, obviously, is the pension uh, uh, liability. So the pension liability for the EU officials, for the members of parliament, uh, justices in the court of uh, justice, etc., and then there's the joint uh, insurance scheme. So, so there's three different elements. And there, I mean, this is based on an actuary evaluation at a particular point in time. And as we know, with pensions, things change. People, you know, their life expectancy can only be guessed at a particular point in time. So that figure could change. But again, any change is restricted to the 12.36% share that the UK would have. So there could be changes, but I don't think based on past experience, they won't be really very substantial. Uh, there's a, another element which is basically fines, which has reduced that amount. So these are fines, competition fines, which the EU has in, instigated, and the, the UK would be entitled to their share of those fines. So there's around 2 billion euros for that. So that's where we come to the 47.5 billion euros. Well, when the UK initially made their own estimates they were talking about between 35 and 39 billion pounds and already treasury officials are saying oh look this is an estimate uh, we expect the figure to be different how do you explain the um, discrepancy between what the UK anticipated paying and, and the, the final amount in the EU's consolidated accounts well, the only thing I can say is that the, the estimate now is probably a better estimate than it was at the time when, because we're nearer the date and there was a clearer view on exactly how much the, the RAL, for instance, was. I mean, that would have been very much a, a guess at the time, you know, how much commitments will be entered into by the EU 28 for various projects, etc. Whereas we have a definitive figure for that now at the end of 2020. And we've just, it's mathematical then, we just applied the 12.36% to that. The pensions, the exact same. I mean, I, 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 again, there's probably more leeway there for, for actuarial assumptions can change, et cetera, et cetera. So, but again, these figures are based on the best estimate at the end of 2020 that the Commission have calculated in line with the withdrawal agreement uh, criteria, I would say. And is it clear how the payments will be staggered over time? Yes, there's a very, it's, I mean, the schedule of payments is clear. I mean, there's a, a, there's a twice yearly reporting by the Commission to the UK and there's monthly payments for, for the RAL, for instance. For the pensions, I think it's a one payment based on uh, the payments actually made the previous year. So no, it's very well defined in, in, the, in, the, in the terms of the contract, if you like. So it's basically a contract, an obligation under a contract to pay. And I think it's very clear unless certain things happen. For instance, if, if these commitments, for some reason or other, some member states decide not to go ahead with them, well, then obviously the bill will reduce. But I mean, again, it will be reducing by this percentage only. I mean, it's not, if, if for instance, uh, the, the RAL, uh, you know, is reduced by 1 billion euros, well, then it would be 120 million, for instance, for, for the UK would be their reduction. So, as I say, the, it's, 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 the, 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 there could be reductions, but it, it's marginal. And there's the other issue of, uh, for instance, guarantees that they have given on loans, uh, you know, under the EFSM or, 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 or the FC. 
And there they have basically given a, a percentage, they're guaranteeing loans, but none of this is, is in, included in the calculation of the 47.5 in any case. It's not part of that uh, package. So it could be that if the, if the loans don't default, well, they get their money back that they have given as a guarantee. But likewise, if there are defaults, which are highly unlikely given that we're talking about member states, they would actually have to, the UK would have to contribute accordingly again. So if, if, if there are no defaults on those loans, um, does, does that mean the figure would go down? And, and is it possible no, to say by how much? No, no, it's completely separate. That's what I'm saying. The 47.5 is made the components I have just said. The, the, lo the loans is a separate issue altogether and it's not mm, okay. They would get the money back for the, for the guarantees that they have already provided, but it's not part of the 47.5 billion uh, settlement figure. Okay, just a final question, Tony. You recall at the time some of the political response in the UK in the early part of the negotiations about whether or not it was right for the UK to be paying a huge sum of money to the EU and the, the idea that they mm. would pay money in exchange for getting a good free trade agreement. Um, but as things have panned out, this appears to be the way the EU had always intended things to, to unfold? Well, I think I think there was probably, it was a shame that there were, for me it was a misnomer to put the Boer settlement on this, to, to give it that title, because it's not that, it's obligations that they just ha have entered into through being a member of the EU. It was just, it's just part and part of part and parcel of being an EU member, that if you're participating in programmes, some of them, I mean, obviously, some member states are net payers, others are, are net, uh, you know, recipients. The UK obviously was a, was a net payer, so it was always going to pay in more than it got out of, likewise, Ireland now is moving into that into that field as well. So I don't think it's, it's, it's not a settlement, it's not a present or anything like that. These are obligations that they went, entered into, and as long as the pro, as long as they were in the programmes, they're their share of 12.36% was, was due. So I think, as I say, the divorce settlement, in my view, was probably not the best name to be put on it from the starting point. I mean, because it gives it gives the impression that this is something which is not linked to the ongoing activity, which is all it is, basically. Okay, that's that's the headline writers for you. I, I, I blame them. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 but it's true. I mean, I think it's not a divorce settlement. I mean, because... It gives the impression, particularly in the UK, that this is like a, a, a almost like a punishment for leaving. You know what I mean? That this yeah. is a figure that has nothing to do with the, the ongoing activity. And I mean, the UK was also benefiting from these programs as well. I mean, great. Okay, Tony, we'll leave it there. All right, that was Tony Murphy, Ireland's representative on the European Court of Auditors. Tony, I suppose to wrap up this week, we've talked about the current friction, but you've been talking to a veteran of EU-UK relations in happier times when the UK was still inside the EU and somebody who's still trying to apply some of his talents to trying to smooth the current frictions. Yeah, so I've been talking this week to Paul Adamson, who's a very well-known figure in Brussels. He's He's a Brit who came here, wow, probably 30-odd years ago, and he's worked in various fields in, in lobbying and publishing. But he has always worked at trying to build understanding between the UK and the EU um, to, to try and steer the conversation away from the, the, the more... Hi, the hyperbole of, of headlines and so on uh, and clearly 
the the Brexit result was um, a big personal affront to him. Um, but since the referendum, he has been working quite hard to try and improve relations between the UK and the EU, which, as we have talked about, have been really fractious since the 1st of January. And he set up a thing called the EU-UK Forum, which is a forum for people to talk and to, to meet. And he's held quite a few online sessions uh, on things like the Irish border. Um, but this week he had a big event which had Mara Shevcevic, the UK ambassador, Lindsay Appleby, the EU ambassador to the UK, João Valle de Almeida. Um, and I've been asking him about his work in Brussels and how he thinks it is in any way possible to try and improve relations between both sides, given how difficult things have been. Paul Adamson, very warm welcome to Brexit Republic. Uh, great to have you on the podcast. Can you just explain to our listeners your own backstory in Brussels? You're, you're uh, something of a, a bridge between UK politics and academia and the, the political world of Brussels over the years. How, how would you describe it yourself in, in, in potted form? Okay, well, thank you for having me on, Tony. Well, actually, it's 40 years uh, this summer that I first turned up in Brussels to try and earn a living. And uh, even though my, my day job was advising companies and organizations about how the European Union worked, uh, I've always felt this, this need, this concern to, to try and bridge the, yeah, the, the, the gap between the UK and the EU. Other people are doing it, I'm sure. I'm not saying I was the only operator, but I've always felt almost from the get-go that I had to do something outside my job to do what I could to try and bring the two sides together and so they could better understand each other. There's quite a divide as we see even now, 40 years later. And what was your own gut reaction at the time to the Brexit referendum? Because surely that would have gone against everything that you had been kind of working for at the time. Yeah, well, thank you for reminding me of that painful experience, Tony. Yeah. Well, as you probably, you know, we know each other pretty well. I, I've done over the years, decades, all the different things to try and create, you know, mutual understanding. I, I launched a, a glossy color magazine 20 years ago called eSharp, which was all about trying to explain to people how the UK views Europe, but also to explain to, to the UK how, how the U European Union functions and it, hopefully an accessible form. As you know, the, the European debate, when it does take place, is characterized by a lot of a lot of conoscentes, we call them, just talking amongst themselves, not necessarily agreeing, but at a high level of detail and a high level of implied uh, mutual knowledge. And I was I was determined to try and um, break through that and 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 uh, get to people who are interested in the European Union, not obsessed by it, but felt they needed to understand better what the hell was going on. But to answer your question about the ref yeah on the referendum, sorry, you yeah, asked about the referendum. I was yeah, I was mortified, obviously, but I would rather than you know become suicidal or, or pick up the nearest whiskey bottle. I was determined, maybe even more, without sounding too self uh, self important, maybe even more determined to 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 not to give up and to try and keep building these bridges. Because one might have suspected that with the general drift of British people working in the institutions and obviously MEPs and so on, with, with the drift of them away from Brussels after the referendum result or certainly after Brexit came into effect, that there might have been a general deflation in, in the mood and the enthusiasm to, to keep working on building those bridges. 
Um, but, but you went ahead and set up the EU-UK forum. How did that come about? Well, I was, again, I was, again, as he's determined not to, not to give up. I mean, my, what was, you know, one of the many paradoxes of the, of the referendum in the UK, which has always been characterized as a pretty difficult, awkward member of the European Union, was to see all these hundreds of thousands of what I call real people, not inside the Westminster bubble, turning out in marches saying, we love Europe, we want to be part of Europe. And my biggest concern, maybe one of my biggest concerns was that after the, the reality of Brexit, you know, end of January last year when we formally left, end of December last year when we the transition expired, was the people would say very understandably, well, I gave it my best shot. I need to go back to my day job and earn a living, uh, not be distracted. Uh, but I that just made me more determined. I didn't have that excuse. I've always worked for myself. Uh, I have certain independence. So I wanted to launch this forum just to, to remind everybody, frankly, apart from the actual activities that the that the UK is has not left in the sense that we still want to, the UK want to be engaged. Uh, I think a lesson the British government hasn't totally taken on board. And so the idea is just to keep people talking at a political level, at a institutional, uh, corporate level. Is that is that the the objective well, well, of the uh, well, forum? Well, at all different levels, frankly. I mean, I, I'm this. It's a membership model, but membership is free, so it's a very good deal. Anybody wants to join, by the way, just go onto our website. And I'm I'm very pleased, frankly. We have you know a good proportion of what you might call VIP members. You know, people like yourself in the in the media world, uh, diplomats, all those kind of people. But also what I again call real people, people who have jobs outside the political world. And I'm as as happy and as pleased to see people like that joining the. The forum, as I are, as I am, about seeing these so-called VIP people, and yeah, at the moment it is about just basically webinars because of COVID. But it is it is it has threefold maybe informal uh, purpose. One is actually to remind the UK government, frankly, without being too too confrontational, that you know Brexit is not done, no matter what you might try to convey to the to the British public. And there's a lot of unfinished business, as we all know. Uh, secondly, to to show to our European friends from the UK side that some of us have not less, you know, lost uh, uh, track of our senses, and we want to stay engaged, and we and we are still very much interested in in, in the European Union. Uh, and thirdly, without again, without being hopefully too pretentious on the psychological level, why the, that's why there's this membership model, something a place where people could convene and 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 talk about Europe, or at least listen to and watch debates about Europe. So to show that they uh, they are also part of the ongoing project. I mean, since the first uh, of January, we've seen a chapter of disputes, of uh, contentious arguments and debates, and some cantankerous two-way communications between Brussels and London. Uh, and this is obviously manifest in the Northern Ireland Protocol, but obviously other issues around fisheries. Uh, and so on. Were you surprised by how quickly things deteriorated uh, from the 1st of January in terms of that chemistry that should exist between both sides despite the the, the, the years of negotiation? Yeah, surprised and dismayed, frankly, because as some some experts say, okay, the, 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 the Leave camp clearly won five years ago. Uh, they, won, they, they won the argument or the vote about leaving the European Union, but they did not win the right at the same time to create a very bad atmosphere between the two sides. Uh, I think that's what I think that's what a lot of so-called Remainers find the most galling that okay, we the Remain camp lost. They could have done a better job maybe, but they lost. 
let's we we've accept that. Let's move on. Uh, but the atmosphere is, as you suggest, is so dire at the moment. It's it's creating an extraordinarily bad atmosphere. Uh, but going back to my forum br briefly, although it's it'd be ridiculous to ignore the the current very pressing problems on the island of Ireland. Um, the 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 kind of vocation of this forum is medium to long term. Let's keep talking on issues which are maybe less content contentious. Uh, without obviously ignoring what's happening now uh, and just try and be more uh, constructive going forward. And I, but I have to say the British government is not always helping us in that regard, that's for sure. Now, you, you, this week you had your, your first annual conference, I think. But what, one of your guests, Paul, was the EU's ambassador to the UK, João Valle de Almeida. And he described the dynamic at the moment between the UK and the EU as something akin to post-traumatic stress. <laughs> I mean, do, do, how, how do you think both sides can try and restore some harmony, uh, especially since, you know, a, a lot of the friction seems to be around the, the Northern Ireland Protocol and kind of unfinished business there. So one imagines that the UK is still going to keep that edge to their uh, posture towards the EU uh, while they're still not getting what they want to get on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Well, as yeah, absolutely. And Joao was right when he said that, in my view. But then you also referenced Mara Shektovich, who kicked off the conference, and he's quite, I thought, remarkably candid by saying, there's a, in effect, there's a breakdown in trust. And it's clear that for many, many good reasons, the UK, the EU at the moment does not trust the British government for many obvious uh, reasons. And that's the, that's the issue, which means that um, despite all the, the rhetoric and the, the wordplay and the articles in the Irish Times by the by the British government and so on and so on, there's just underlining the fact that the EU does not take, it's not they're just not taking the UK seriously, that'd be half the problem. It's just it, it just finds the UK government at the moment uh, untrustworthy and, and one can't see any change to that. There's, as you know, there's a, a very deep suspicion and fear in many quarters uh, that the, the UK is deliberately trying to make this into a crisis in the hope that the EU will, will in a very uh, unrealistic way, just rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol. Right. Uh, I mean... Do you think it's possible that there are, I don't know, back channels or other channels between London and Brussels trying to work on this relationship? I don't know if you're actively involved yourself. You can tell us if you are. <laughs> but I mean, I'm thinking basically that, you know, because so much of Boris Johnson's policy towards the EU has been vested in one man, and that's David Frost, uh, mm. where, where he, he doesn't seem to be taking a lot of counsel from other pillars of the political establishment in the UK. Um, does that mean the work that you would do in trying to foster reconciliation and understanding it just means you're essentially banging your head against the wall? Well, it's clear, and none of us are David Frost or Boris Johnson, so we're not in that kind of pivotal role at the centre of the, the of British power, if you like. Uh, but at the same time, that, that does not mean that uh, the rest of us who are, are, are dedicated to this and committed to this in terms of improving relations between the two sides should just step away and say, well, we, we have no political, political 
influence. I think on the country, maybe you hint in your question, Tony, that uh, there's lots we can do. And starting, by the way, frankly, with the, with the civil servants, who, of course, they have to go along like in any democratic country with the wishes and, 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 and demands of their political masters, but nonetheless have a certain leeway, I would, I would suggest, to, to try and uh, build on these back channels and uh, what's called in the jargon track two diplomacy, where it's sort of unofficial stuff going on. And people like me certainly yeah, can, uh, can play a part and I fully intend to do so. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast, Paul Adamson, and uh, we wish you all the best in your continuing very important work in, in trying to foster understanding and communication between the, the EU and the UK post-Brexit. And of course, in Ireland, that is a very important uh, issue with the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's been a pleasure having you, Paul, and all the best. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being on. Bye-bye, Tony. Okay, Paul Adamson there. That's our final interview of this week. Tony, looking ahead to the coming week, uh, I'm on leave next week, so there there won't be an episode, but we will bring uh, another episode in a few weeks' time. But I suppose the big deadline coming down the tracks is the uh, UK Parliament toddling off on the 22nd of July and the proposals to overcome the current difficulties that are going to be tabled from the British side, which they say are going to come before that date. Would that be, I suppose, the big Brexit-related thing that we'll be seeing over the coming while, or is there anything else on the agenda as well? I think that's going to be the big thing, Colm. You know, we, we've we've had this extension to the grace period for chilled meats, and that was designed partly to give both sides a bit of breathing space to start negotiating something long-term, some long-term solution that would deal with the, you know, the real substantive issue of moving food into Northern Ireland from Great Britain. That is the big kind of prize, if you like, and it's still been very elusive. Both sides are still at loggerheads over how to do this. The UK is saying, no way will we dynamically align with EU food safety rules. The, the EU is saying... Well, if you want to have no checks, then that's the only way to do it. But if you want to have some checks, then you have to tell us what those checks are going to be. Let us know. And, um, you know, again, this this relates back to this annoyance, I think, at EU level that the UK, in its relentless criticisms of the protocol, seems to be, you know, moving the goalposts and adding new kind of worries each week uh, and not really saying, okay, this is what we think should happen. These are the checks that we think should apply. This is the degree to which we think we'll diverge from EU food safety standards in future. Um, and the EU is saying, look, unless we get that kind of clarity from you, then we can't sit down and work on a pragmatic solution. Both sides still talking past each other. And again, not a lot of time. So the, the July 22nd deadline is going to be a key one. I think a lot of people are suspecting that the UK could announces triggering Article 16 at that point. I still think that's a little bit of a a far-fetched move by the UK because it would bring about a world of legal action and mistrust and antagonism, probably a lot more than what the UK would be comfortable with, especially given the ministrations of the Biden administration uh, on the protocol issue. Um, but that's really the big thing to look out for in the coming weeks. All right. Okay, unlikely, but a damn good podcast, the makings thereof anyway. One hopes so, yeah. I'll be on leave, I think, when that is happening, but yeah, we'll yourself do. and Sean will that's do it. a mighty job, no doubt. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. All right, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungine, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. 
And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.